Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The sun is rising over the bay as the man looks out of his bedroom windows. The bay is calm, with barely a ripple of imperfection across the entire stretch of water. His maid, who had opened the curtains in the first place, continued the daily routine by returning to the man's bedside with a trolley laden with the usual fare and the morning's broadsheets. As the maid leaves her employer to eat, he opens up one of the folded papers to read the day's news. The paper brings word from all corners of the Empire and beyond, transmitted by telegraph through the undersea cables, the thin red line. There is a triumphant passage describing the ongoing construction of the most advanced battleship in the Royal Navy. The HMS Dreadnought will guarantee British naval supremacy for a generation, the author exclaims. The Viceroy of India, Lord Curzon, has announced the partition of Bengal, in an attempt to ease the friction between the Muslim and Hindu inhabitants. There are also more reports of the shameful events in Russia. The Tsar's soldiers had opened fire on protesters. It was a surprise they still even knew how to fire their guns, since their utter failure against the Japanese, the man thought to himself. Just as he folds up the paper to begin his day, he notices a small piece about two Americans who'd created some kind of flying machine. The novelty of it all cheered him as he went downstairs to his offices. The man is a businessman, a merchant and loyal subject of the British crown. After all, he owes his prosperity to the Empire. Alongside the latest news, the thin red line brings the latest prices from a dozen far-flung markets. His main products, textiles, were fashioned out of New Zealand wool and Indian cotton transported to Britain along shipping routes protected from piracy by the Royal Navy. Once they reached the mills of Lancashire and Manchester, they were woven into their finished product and exported back along those shipping lanes and out into the world, earning our businessman and his investors a tidy profit. The resources, the trade networks and the markets were all, in one manner or another, a product of Britain's imperial might. He had never served in the military himself, but both of his sons were commissioned as officers. His eldest was a lieutenant in the army, and had served during that unfortunate business in the Transvaal not a few years ago. Thankfully, he had no role in those appalling camps. The youngest was a midshipman in the navy, and had yet to see any real fighting. Even now, he was stationed at some remote naval base in the Pacific, 
gambling away his pay and allowance. As the man reminisces, he looks out the office window. That view could be anywhere the Union Jack flew. This isn't any particular cloth merchant, and he could be one of millions of British subjects. He could be living in Toronto, looking out over the waters of Lake Ontario. He could be in Cape Town, or Melbourne, or Bombay, or Alexandria. His office could be in any number of cities in Britain itself, perhaps Liverpool or Portsmouth. He could even be in one of the number of countries whose governments did not formally answer to London, but who were highly integrated into the British system nonetheless. Each of these far-flung places were connected by a political, financial, or cultural ties. For a subject of the British Empire with the means to take advantage, the world was open for business. It is October 1905, and the British Empire is unrivalled on the international stage. The Pax Britannica, the British peace, is at its height. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 1. A British Peace. Welcome to the first episode of Pax Britannica, what I expect and hope will be a long-running podcast series. My name is Samuel Hume, a doctoral student in modern history. Over the last year and a half, I've spent most of my waking hours studying the British Empire, particularly its transformation into the Commonwealth of Nations. The remaining waking hours that weren't spent on Britain's imperial past were spent researching a wildly different subject, the history of witchcraft and witch trials. I had an enormous amount of fun creating the history of witchcraft, and it was incredibly well received, far beyond what I could ever have hoped when I started. The purpose of saying this isn't just to blow my own horn, although that is a convenient bonus, it's to try and prove my credentials for both academic rigour and quality podcasting because there are few historical topics more controversial than the British Empire and its legacy. As we shall see, the name of the show, Pax Britannica, the British peace, is a bit ironic. The peace which Britain oversaw was a peace forged after centuries of violence and bloodshed. Neither was this peace very peaceful. Hopefully that irony makes up for using Latin in the title of a podcast. Most people, if asked, at least in the English-speaking world, would say that Britain once had an empire, but now it does not. But if you posed the same question to a resident of La Linea in southern Spain, looking up at the Rock of Gibraltar, or a fisherman from Rio Grande, whose boat occasionally passes the Royal Navy patrol which guards the Falkland Islands, the answer is less simple. The legacy of empire is still around, To some people, the British Empire never went away. It's still there, as solid as the rock upon which it sits and the steel which guards it. With organisations like the Commonwealth of Nations, there is a political reminder of the Empire. 
Every few years, the 53 members of the organization gather to discuss trade, world affairs, and to try and achieve consensus on controversial issues. Here in Britain, barely a week goes by without a public figure invoking the Commonwealth or the Empire. Invariably, these talking heads are calling for the United Kingdom to reconnect with its former imperial family, hearkening back to a fabled past that, quite often, existed only in popular myth. Countries and territories that were once, formally or otherwise, governed from London have to deal with the legacy of empire every day in ways too numerous to count. If we are to take the perspective that the empire is dead and gone, the next question is, well, when did it die? Was it 1947, with the independence and partition of India, the jewel of the empire? In 1956, with the humiliation of the Suez Crisis, when Britain and France were firmly demoted from the head of the global table? In the 1960s, when almost a dozen African colonies won their independence? Did the empire still exist when Argentinian forces occupied Port Stanley in 1982? What about in 1997, when Hong Kong returned to the control of mainland China. Each of these events could be counted as the end of empire, and arguments have been made for each. In my humble opinion, deciding when the empire ended is difficult exactly because of how gradual the whole process was. There was no declaration of the end of empire, nor a successful revolution to overthrow the system of governance. The government that sits in Westminster today is a continuation of the one that passed the Act of Union in 1707, although obviously incredibly different in form and function. The monarch is still the head of state, albeit having changed families once or twice. The civil service is still operating now as it did a century ago, at the empire's height. There was no upending of the system, or dramatic military defeat, to signpost the end of the empire. Britain was never annexed, London was never conquered, the Commonwealth is still headed by the British monarch, and looks to be so for some time. There was no British fall of Rome, or Constantinople, or October Revolution, or another distinct event that we can point to and say, rightly or wrongly, that this is when the Empire collapsed. If the British Empire died, then it died with a whimper, not a bang, which is much harder to chart on any sort of timeline. In order to begin a podcast history of the Empire, though, we have to settle on a start date for our narrative. And it isn't an exaggeration to say this has been on my mind for months, because deciding when the Empire began is only slightly less complicated than working out when it ended. I've decided to begin with the accession of James VI of Scotland to the thrones of England and Ireland, uniting the three kingdoms of the British Isles under a single king. I've chosen the beginning of the Stuart era for a few good reasons. It was under the Stuarts that England began taking the colonisation of the New World seriously. It was during James's reign that Ulster was planted with English and Scottish Protestants. It was a united Britain that contested the Dutch and the Hanseatic League for dominance of the North Sea and beyond. It was James's son, Charles, who lost his head during the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, which led to the short-lived Protectorate. It was James's grandson who restored the monarchy, and it was another grandson who found himself ousted in the Glorious Revolution. Over the course of this show, you will hear about the entire history of the British Empire, from before the accession of James VI and I, all the way into the 20th century. We will cover the grand sweep of history, meaning the kings and queens, the wars and conquests and colonies that made up the empire. However, 
This is mainly to add a narrative structure to the podcast. As we proceed through the years, we will not be ignoring social and cultural shifts, things harder to pin down on a timeline like it's easy to do with a battle or a coronation. For this podcast, much like my previous show, I will be drawing heavily upon the work of other scholars as well as documents from the time periods in question. A full bibliography will be posted and updated on the website, paxbritannica.info. With key texts listed in the description of each episode if you wish to follow up with your own reading. Over the next six episodes, we will cover the Irish plantations, English exploration, trade and piracy, England's relationship with its neighbours, the domestic situation in both England and Scotland, and the political situation that awaited James as he claimed his throne in 1603. Episode 7 is an interview with Sir John Eliot, Regis Professor Emeritus at Oxford University, and we talk about the similarities between different personal unions, as well as the difficulties James faced in trying to unite his three kingdoms. If you'd rather get into the meat of the narrative straight away, then skip forward to episode 8, The King of Great Britain, which opens with James travelling south to claim his new thrones. We stay with James throughout the rest of his reign, and pick up with Charles I in episode 27, where, unbeknownst to everyone at the time, civil war and revolution looms in the near future. Today's episode will provide some much-needed context about the Kingdom of England at the turn of the 17th century, to act as a foundation for the following episodes. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of Tudor England and Wales, it would be best to give a brief summary of the Tudor monarchs and the events that dynasty oversaw. The first Tudor King of England took the throne after the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485. Henry Tudor, later styled Henry VII, defeated and killed the previous occupant of the throne, Richard III. Richard was buried without ceremony in a future car park, and Henry went on to marry Elizabeth of York to cement his claim to his new kingdom. Henry VII managed to bring stability to a kingdom that had known a generation of civil war, as he worked to restore royal authority by reducing the power of the landed nobility and raising revenues through stricter taxation. Often, these methods were, let's say, controversial. One such way of taxing noble families was through forced loans, which are fairly straightforward. The king requested sizable loans from his subjects, with vague promises of repayment, with the only safe answer to his request being, of course, sire, how much would you like? Another source of taxation was Morton's Fork, named after the Chancellor who doggedly followed his king's commands, although it was possibly thought up by another of Henry's courtiers. The fork was a catch-22. Those who were frugal in their lifestyle were clearly saving their money, while those who spent lavishly were obviously up to their necks in funds. Either way, they could surely afford to give the king all the money he asked for. Naturally, these were not hugely popular, but the stabilising force of Henry VII restored papal authority and the royal treasury, and so by the end of his reign, criticism or outright resistance was muted. That is, of course, until Henry VII died in 1509, after ruling England and Ireland for 24 years. His son became Henry VIII, of wife fame, and mere days after his father's death, two of the most unpopular officials of the previous reign were arrested for treason and later executed, 
leaving Henry the spoils of his father's effective policies without the unpopular baggage. Henry VIII is easily one of the most well-known English kings in all of history, either famous or infamous depending on who's doing the talking. We'll be covering his policies in detail later in this episode and in future episodes, but to summarise, during Henry's reign he fathered three of England's future monarchs. England broke from the Catholic Church for the first time, the Lordship of Ireland became a kingdom, the Principality of Wales was wholly integrated into the English administrative system, and arguably the English Parliament gained its first taste of real power. His reign was marked with the trials and executions of notable courtiers, including two of his wives, the rough wooing of Scotland, as well as the bloody repression of rebellions in England, as well as Ireland. All of these tarnish his reputation ever so slightly. If you're interested in a detailed narrative of his reign, and aren't already a listener of the History of England podcast, I highly recommend it. It goes into detail that I simply can't. Henry VIII died in 1547, after ruling England and Ireland for 38 years, and was succeeded by his son, Edward VI. Edward was only nine when he was crowned, and was devoutly Protestant. His reign was dominated by the manoeuvrings of factions at court, first revolving around the Duke of Somerset, his uncle and Lord Protector, and then by the Earl of Warwick, later Duke of Northumberland, John Dudley. Despite his youth, Edward seems to have played a significant role in the governance of his kingdom. His father may have begun the Reformation in England, but Henry was often conflicted in how much had to change and how quickly. Edward appears to have had few of his father's reservations and was a staunch reformer. During his regency, the rough wooing of Scotland continued. This was essentially a military invasion of England's northern neighbour in an attempt to both weaken this historic enemy, but also for dynastic reasons. Mary, Queen of Scots, was a newborn upon the death of her father, James V, in 1542. In a treaty in 1543, her regent had agreed to betroth the infant queen to Henry's young son, but the treaty was rejected by the Parliament of Scotland, and so Henry sought to enforce its terms through military action. The campaign was devastating, with Edinburgh town and countless other settlements being burnt to the ground, and it did not end with Henry's death, continuing until the Duke of Northumberland came to power. It also backfired spectacularly, pushing Scotland further into the influence of the Kingdom of France with the young Queen's betrothal to the French Dauphin. What kind of king Edward would become once he was truly independent is a question of speculation, as he fell ill and died in August 1553 at the age of 15, having ruled England and Ireland for just six years. He was succeeded not by either of his half-sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, but by Lady Jane Grey, his cousin. Lady Jane was a great-granddaughter of Henry VII, so she had royal blood. She was Protestant, as opposed to Mary's open Catholicism. Exclusion of Mary on grounds of illegitimacy meant that Elizabeth was also excluded. She was also married to the son of Edward's regent, the Duke of Northumberland. This last point is the source of much debate over quite how much influence Northumberland had over the young king. Some at the time and now, see Lady Jane as Northumberland's attempt to keep hold of power after Edward's death. Others look to the legitimate reasons Edward may have chosen Jane as his heir, 
with the Northumberland connection little more than a coincidence. Either way, Edward's devise for the succession came as a surprise not just to the kingdom as a whole, but to Lady Jane herself, who was ushered into the Tower of London days after Edward's death and proclaimed queen. Lady Jane is known to history as the Nine Days Queen. Throughout England, the proclamation that Jane was now queen was met with open dissent. She was, relatively speaking, unknown to the people at large. Mary and Elizabeth were the children of the great King Henry. Who was this usurper being enthroned by politicians? Mary neither accepted the succession nor fled to the continent, instead gathering supporters and forming an army. Northumberland marched out to meet her in battle, only for the Privy Council, who had previously agreed to Edward's changing of the succession and who had supported Queen Jane, to flip to Mary's side. Outmaneuvered politically, and with his army dissolving, Northumberland surrendered to Mary, who had won her throne relatively bloodlessly, and Jane was imprisoned in the same tower that had been her home for the last nine days. Northumberland went to the block, but Mary appears to have wished to spare Jane from execution. Her hand was forced when Jane's father, Henry Grey, Duke of Suffolk, joined Wyatt's rebellion that rose against Mary's planned marriage with the future King of Spain, Philip II. She was too dangerous, Mary's counsel argued, and Jane was subsequently executed for treason. She had ruled, in a manner of speaking, for just nine days. Her father joined her on the block fewer than two weeks later. And so we come to Mary I. Mary oversaw the return of England to the Catholic fold, ordering the arrest and execution of almost 300 Protestants on charges of heresy and treason. Hundreds of others fled the country for the safety of exile. As we shall see next episode, Mary and her husband Philip of Spain supported the plantation of counties Leash and Offaly with English subjects, becoming queens and king's counties. In 1554, after Wyatt's rebellion, Elizabeth was imprisoned in the Tower of London due to suspicion of her involvement. After concluding that she was not actually in league with the failed rebels, she was moved to more comfortable accommodation, and was released in 1555 on the eve of Mary's supposed childbirth. Sadly for Mary, her pregnancy appears to have been false, but Elizabeth remained at court and at liberty. Philippe became King of Spain in 1556 when his father, Emperor Charles V, abdicated his Spanish possessions, and in January of 1558, the English foothold on the continent, Calais, was lost to France. In May of 1558, Mary fell ill, possibly from cancer, and in November of the same year she died, having ruled England and Ireland for just five years, and Queen Consort of Spain for two. Her sister Elizabeth would become Elizabeth I, Gloriana, the third and final child of Henry VIII to take the throne, and the last Tudor. She would rule for 44 years. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. 
I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Elizabeth took the throne at 25, having survived the danger of the Tudor court. Some had openly called for her execution during the reign of her sister, but even with her accession to the throne, she was not yet safe, either from foreign or domestic threats. On the 18th of November, her Privy Council was reduced in size. Those openly loyal to the memory of Mary, or strident in their Catholic beliefs, were removed. Before this happened, William Cecil, Elizabeth's trusted friend, had been made her principal secretary, and Cecil would remain in government until his own death only a few years before Elizabeth's own. Elizabeth entered London on the 23rd of November, accompanied by over a thousand members of nobility and gentry, and held her coronation on the 15th of January, 1559. This date was chosen on the advice of Dr. John Dee, a scholar and astrologer who predicted that this date would be precipitous. Dee had been by Elizabeth's side throughout her sister's reign, and had been imprisoned for sharing Mary's horoscope with Elizabeth. The horoscope prophesied Mary's death, and prophesizing the death of her reigning monarch was treasonous. Dee managed to extricate himself from this hot water, and remained in Elizabeth's favour providing medical and intellectual services until the mid-1580s. This included treating Elizabeth's illness in 1571, advising the government on calendar reform in the 1580s, and, famously, declaring that King Arthur, among other mythical British figures, had discovered and conquered all of North America. And so Elizabeth had claimed the entire continent, He was also one of the first, if not the very first, to use the term British Empire. One of the first matters to attend to was religion, and in 1559 Parliament enacted a new Act of Supremacy, Henry VIII's Act of Supremacy having been repealed under Mary in her attempts to return England to the fold of Rome. Elizabeth's new Act differed from her father's in that, as a concession to opponents, 
Elizabeth would only be the supreme governor of the Church of England, rather than the supreme head. This new act required an oath of supremacy, whereupon certain subjects, initially bishops, churchmen, and later extended to university fellows and members of parliament, were expected to swear an oath to, quote, utterly renounce and forsake all foreign jurisdictions, powers, superiorities, and authorities, and do promise that from henceforth I shall bear faith and true allegiance to the Queen's Highness, end quote. Refusing to do so, like under Henry, was a treasonable offence. In addition to the Act of Supremacy, the current Parliament also passed the Act of Uniformity, which expressly required all subjects of the Queen to attend Church of England ceremonies every Sunday based on a new version of the Book of Common Prayer. Elizabeth's religion and those of her court would firmly define her kingdom as Protestant after the short interval of Mary's reign. Anglicanism, as it would come to be known, would take a sort of middle path between the reforms of Lutheranism and Calvinism and the Roman Church, taking some elements of each, but resisting gravitating too far towards one or the other. As with any compromise, it didn't please everyone. It remained heresy to Catholics, while more reformed Protestants sought further changes. Religion will never be far from the narrative, either on the domestic scene or otherwise. As we shall see in a future episode, Elizabeth's foreign policy was, in part, motivated by her religious position. And as the traditional friendly relationship between England and Spain breaks down, religious divisions come to the fore. The society of early modern Britain was intensely religious, and we will look at religious doctrine in much more detail in a later episode. During the Tudor reign, steps were taken to bring, quote, rude parts into alignment with expectations in London. These rude parts were, for Tudor Britain, Wales and the north of England, whose political economic and cultural norms differed from what the court considered civilised. It should be said that, as we will see in future episodes, both Edinburgh and Dublin considered their border regions to be similarly alien. In many ways, officials in London saw the border regions and Wales as a frontier. Lawless, sparsely populated, with primitive economies, populated by, in the words of Professor Jane Olmeyer of Trinity College, Dublin, quote, barbarians, rebels and subversives intent on destabilising the peripheries of the British monarchies, end quote. One English official described the inhabitants of the north of England as, quote, Scottish when they will, and English at their pleasure, end quote, due to their tendency to alter their allegiance between the two monarchies as it suited. Wales is an example of this civilising mission-bearing fruit. By the beginning of the 1530s, tensions within Wales and between Welsh nobles and the crown were starting to fray. The Marcher Lords were, in the words of Professor Jenkins, quote, a ramshackle cluster of violent and disorderly behaviour, being willfully manipulated by unscrupulous lords for their own private purposes, end quote. This is nothing new, though, but opinions at court were changing. The late Sir Geoffrey Elton proposed that Thomas Cromwell, Henry's chief minister, had overseen a revolution in Tudor government, which replaced the medieval system of royal governance with a more professional bureaucracy. This argument has its critics, such as from his former student, David Starkey, but Cromwell certainly seems to have pushed for greater royal control. 
not centralization along the lines enjoyed by absolutist monarchs on the continent, but obvious impediments to royal authority were ruthlessly removed by Cromwell throughout his time in power. Spearheaded by Cromwell, the lords of the Welsh marches had their rights and privileges stripped. From 1536, their legal immunities were revoked, and their right to raise and command armies removed in the Laws of Wales Acts of 1535 and 1542. Welsh law, tolerated within the boundaries of the Principality, was terminated by the English Parliament, and the Principality was shired along English lines. This reorganised both Wales, which gained new counties, and the English counties on the border, which gained many of the former marcher lands. Wales could now elect MPs to attend the English Parliament, something that had been forbidden prior to the Acts. Sheriffs, justices of the peace, and other officials common in England were now implemented in the Principality. It was not all sunshine and roses, however. Only those officials who could, quote, use and exercise the English speech or language, end quote, were able to hold public office. Welsh was, quote, a speech nothing like, nor consonant to the natural mother tongue used within this realm, end quote, while Welsh-speaking regions were wholly annexed into England. These changes were enforced piecemeal, and with little opposition from native Welsh gentry or marcher lords. The former largely welcomed their inclusion into a political system they'd been forbidden from, and benefited from the stability these changes brought, while the latter now had no real method of opposing the changes. There was no debate or protest to mar the changes that has been recorded, save for the petty comments of Roland Lee, a former Lord President of the Marches, that despised the Welsh as criminals, all of them criminals, worth only hanging, a testament he'd put into practice during his time in office. During Elizabeth's reign, officials and administrators praised the integration of Wales as a model for their troubles with Ireland, and in 1563 Welsh became permitted in churches and a Welsh translation of the Bible ordered made. By 1584, Welsh historians such as David Powell praised the, quote, happy incorporation. By and large, the reforms implemented by Cromwell were seen as a wild success by officials, despite their drawbacks, and they became an inspiration for similar ambitions in London, Edinburgh, and Dublin to integrate their frontiers. Within England itself, the Wild North was just such a frontier, and was far more militarised and unstable than Wales throughout the 16th century. Partly, this is due to the region being part of a war zone for a good chunk of the century, as the English and Scots squabbled, either as part of a larger conflict on the continent, or for their own local reasons. However, even during periods of peace, such as most of the second half of the century, the violence never truly ceased. Border lords on both sides of the border kept private armies ostensibly to protect their side of the line, but often devolved into feuds and retaliatory raids. Between 1587 and 1597, the damage done to English West March by Scottish reavers was valued at £12,000, and £13,000 worth of damage across the border was attributed to English reavers. Raiders would destroy villages, kill or capture their inhabitants, and steal their crops and cattle. Relative peace on the border would only come with the personal union of James, but attempts were made to civilise these regions during the Tudor reign. 
Cromwell yet again enters our story, as he made an attempt to curb the marcher lords in the north as he had those in the west. In 1534, Cromwell arranged for the arrest and trial of one such lord on charges of treason. He had been building ties with his neighbours across the border. While this was arguably his job in attempting to keep the peace, Cromwell saw an opportunity to break the power of a noble family, and he took it. The lord was acquitted, but during the trial part of his authority was wrested away and granted to a rival. Two years later, Cromwell began to roll back some of the privileges the region enjoyed, and enforced the authority of royal agents in areas where previously they had been excluded. With the death of the heirless Earl of Northumberland in 1537, much of his lands passed to the crown, and deputies were appointed to project royal authority in the north. Northumberland had also been the king's lieutenant in the north, and with his death, the Duke of Norfolk was granted this position although with substantially weakened authority that had been diverted to the Council of the North. Local gentry were promoted to the Council by Cromwell, who were grateful for the increase in status and kept under the strict control of the Crown. The failed rebellion of the Pilgrimage of Grace, which erupted in opposition to Henry's religious reforms, gave the Crown both an incentive and a justification for greater control over the unruly North. As mentioned, it was only with the personal union of James that something resembling true peace descended on the border, but Tudor government had made great strides in enforcing its authority in the north. Thank you for listening to this first episode of Pax Britannica. Next time we will cross the Irish Sea and take a look at English rule in the Emerald Isle. A complex mix of loyalties, ethnicities and religions made establishing Tudor authority a bloody and relentless affair. Sometimes called England's first colony, Tudor officials will try all manner of methods to bring the Irish into their orbit. The carrot was preferable, but as we shall see, they were quite willing to use the stick. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.